If I can get everyone's attention, we're going to go ahead and get started. Well, welcome. My name is Adam Thier. I'm a senior fellow with the Progress and Freedom Foundation here in Washington. And welcome to today's Hill event on online child safety, privacy, and free speech, an overview of challenges in Congress in the states. The purpose of today's event, as that title implies, is to have a discussion about the intersection of the ongoing debates over online child safety, privacy, kids' privacy, free speech, First Amendment issues, and so on, at the federal and state level. Over the past couple of years, there's been a flurry of legislative and regulatory activity uh, at various levels of government related to these issues. Specifically, of course, we've seen efforts to legislate on the front of uh, adult-oriented content and access to it online, uh, cyberbullying, online harassment, hate speech, things like that, uh, age verification requirements for social networking sites or restrictions on social networking sites directly in publicly funded institutions, uh, expansion of the Federal uh, Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, or COPPA, um, and the issue of sexting, which most recently has been in the news of uh, youngsters sending uh, sexually explicit images of themselves over mobile devices. So these are just some of the, the many issues we're going to be discussing and uh, debating here today with you. And we're going to try to answer the question of how serious these concerns are, whether legislation or regulation is uh, the wise way to address these concerns, um, what free speech and privacy corresponding uh, values or issues are there to be balanced against, and should Congress take the lead in addressing these things, or should it be left to potentially the state or local officials to do so? These are just some of the issues we'll be addressing uh, today and that our uh, expert panelists will be discussing. So before I introduce our all-star panelists to you, let me just do a shameful plug for something that PFF has just come out with, which is the version 4.0 of our big parental controls and online child protection report which is a survey of the tools and methods that are available for parents and policymakers to consider when thinking about how to best protect kids online. This is, as I said, version 4.0, the fourth major edition, although we come out with two or three major tweaks to each edition during the year. I'm already hard at work on version 4.1, correcting the things I missed in 4.0. Um, let me assure you that it's a little bit thicker than this. Uh, on the back is the, the table of contents for the entire document. You can find it online at pff.org forward slash parental controls. Again, pff.org forward slash parental controls. Um, it's 250 pages long, over uh, 70 exhibits, 700 and some references, plenty of additional reading material to bore you to death. Um, and uh, I wish I could say we didn't print it out because we're being environmentally conscious and want to save the earth, but it's more because it's really expensive and PFS broke. So uh, <laughs> if anybody would like to give a charitable donation to print copies, I'm all for it. Um, anyway. Uh, let me introduce the panel. Uh, in the interest of time, I usually dispense with long-winded bios. We, we pass them out for you as you walked in the door. As I always say, these are smart folks or else I wouldn't have invited them to be here today. Um, and uh, I'm just going to get the conversation started pretty quickly after I give just one or two lines of description about each of our panelists. First, it's my pleasure to be joined here today by Perry Aftab, uh, who's well known to everyone in this field uh, and in the online safety community in general. Um, as the executive director of WiredSafety.org, as well as several other related uh, online safety organizations. She has been a real pioneer in the field of online child safety and is a frequent voice and face on many Capitol Hill panels and debates, uh, online safety task forces, in the press, on television. She's everywhere. Um, and 
we're happy to have her t at today's event. So welcome, Perry. So much for short introduction. <laughs> Jim Helpert is here with us today uh, as well. He's a partner in the communications, e-commerce, and privacy practice at the law firm of DLA Piper. Jim was doing cyber law back before cyber law was cool. Uh, he's been doing it a long time, and he probably knows more about the issues, the legal issues surrounding new technologies and the First Amendment privacy than just about anybody I know. So it's a real pleasure that Jim joins us here today. Thank Welcome, you. Jim. Uh, down at the end there is Todd Haken, who's Senior Manager of Policy for Common Sense Media, nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the media and entertainment lives of kids and families. Todd brings to the table years of experience uh, in working on these issues, uh, both because of his background on Capitol Hill and the time he spent as Manager of Policy for the National PTA. Finally, we have my colleague, Baron Soka, who's a Senior Fellow at PFF and Director of PFF Center for Internet Freedom. Barron was previously an associate in the communications practice group at Latham & Watkins, where he dealt with many different cyber law issues before coming to PFF. Barron's been a real asset to us at PFF for no other reason than I have forced him to co-author endless papers with me, a <laughs> process which basically consists of me going to his office and ranting for hours on end until he relents and writes a really good paper and lets me put my name on it as a co-author. <laughs> Then when something goes wrong, I put all the blame on his shoulders. So that's been a great relationship for me. <laughs> and let me just take the opportunity to thoroughly embarrass Barron by saying it is his birthday today, so happy birthday, Barron. Okay. Okay, so now in terms of organization, our conversation is going to be very freewheeling uh, and colloquial, and I'm going to direct it here from the podium by po uh, throwing out some questions and some issues for discussion. There won't be any prepared formal remarks to open things. It'll rather be, a, a, like I said, a very freewheeling discussion. So before we get started, one final thing. Please mute your cell phones as a courte uh, courtesy to our uh, participants. Okay, so let's get rolling. Um, let me start with a big picture question for our, uh, for our panelists um, and ask them to step back and, and consider what are the most significant changes that you all have seen covering these child safety and online policy safety debates over the last uh, decade or so. What are the most significant changes you've seen, both in terms of the tone of the debate and the substance of the debate? Perry, let's start with you. Um, well, I think this is an example. Today, we're seeing a lot more collaboration. Uh, you bringing in a lot of other groups to do this, all of us talking to each other, whether we were part of the, the Berkman Center, MySpace Attorney General Task Force, or whether we were appointed to the NTIA Working Group for whether it's industry or um, clients. So we're seeing a lot more on the collaboration side. We're seeing that no one wants to fund curricula. And so in the beginning, cyber safety was funded basically to one group that walked away with all of the money. Um, and it was curriculum, and a lot of us believe that that didn't work. So now all of the new issues that we're seeing, all of the bills across the board that are looking at funding these things are looking for merit, they're not looking for the people with the big lobbyists, and they're not looking for curriculum. They want to see what works, what can easily be adopted, and how all of us can get access to it. Hmm. Jim, how about you? What's the biggest change over the past 10 years? Well, I think there's a lot more awareness of the Internet and how people use the Internet. So when I think back to, for example, 1995-96, to go back a little further, um, the concern was that children online might see some sort of pornography online. Well, there, there are technology solutions that are very effective in protecting kids from that. 
and I think some of the from some of the early mistakes that Congress made in approaching the internet, we now have a richer understanding of the technology tools that are available to protect kids. Also, a greater sophistication about curriculum, as Perry said. But it, you can see this education continue to, for example, the presidential campaign this year, where uh, the Obama tech platform had a very specific proposal not to censor, but to uh, encourage use of technologies to empower parents to protect kids, and also calling on parents to be involved in their children's use of media, not to, to use media as a babysitter, but to um, uh, be aware of what children are doing and to make use of technology tools where people understand them to have greater understanding. And we, I think, now have a president who's very good at getting in the bully pulpit and going out and speaking to audiences, and I think we'll see more of that, and also a much more serious uh, fact-finding exercise, and you see that going on at NTIA today about what's really going to work and what's not. But we've moved away from the notion that we can simply ban an activity and solve all problems to a much richer understanding of how you actually change behavior or cabin behavior in order to protect kids. There's no uh, foolproof solution that will work 100 percent of the time, but it's a matter of doing better and better and uh, providing a better education and better tools to uh, make parents able to protect their kids and making schools much more aware of what does and doesn't go on and between kids. Cyberbullying, for example, is an issue that um, uh, I think was largely ignored. Now, a lot of schools are aware of it. Uh, the uh, Anti-Defamation League has a model child bullying proposal that's really pretty thoughtful that I think we can expect to see uh, travel further. So uh, over time, fortunately, there's greater enlightenment. The problems aren't less, but I think that's the, the responses are a lot more sophisticated. Good. We'll get into the task forces as well as cyberbullying issues a bit more in a second. Let's jump down to Todd and get, uh, get your response on this question of biggest change over the past 10 years you've witnessed. Sorry, birthday boy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually think that the, the biggest shift that we, we've seen, and uh, from, from common sense's perspective, a very positive one, is we're shifting away from the crime and risk prevention uh, to uh, model to an education model um, to, as Jim said, an empowerment model, um, where the crime and risk prevention has been predicated on fear, and you have a lot of uh, predators are out there and bad things are happening, people are starting to come around and actually read the research and see that the research is saying that it's peer-on-peer -peer and there's major, major issues there. That's not to say that when something happens with a predator, it's not tragic. However, we're not looking at the bigger reality. Um, there's still too much focus on uh, the, the crime prevention side uh, from our perspective. Uh, for example, you have uh, Linda Sanchez introduced legislation that um, basically would make it illegal to uh, harass or upset anyone, essentially, uh, through electronic communication. Um, so no more responding to blog posts. You will be a felon. Um, in Tennessee, you just had uh, uh, similar to the Sanchez legislation actually become law. Now, it's not in effect yet. That's October, so we haven't seen a challenge. But even legislation that uh, we strongly support, uh, Senator Menendez and Rep. Wasserman Schultz recently introduced legislation, still it's 
funding through the Department of Justice. So it's still related to crime and risk prevention instead of education and health. Because really what people are starting to realize is this is a public health issue. Um, We're going to get into those details, Todd, so hold your fire. Yep. Okay. So I, I don't mind going last since I was in college 10 years ago when, when we started this conversation. <laughs> and was certainly not following these issues the same way that, that my fellow panelists are. Um, but I, I, will, I will say there, there are two, I think, good things and, and two bad things. Um, two good things have already been mentioned. One is a, a shift towards user empowerment, which is really central to all of the work that Adam and I do. And, it, and it's really because we, we look at all of these issues as free speech issues. And we think that the, the courts and policymakers should always be asking whether there are uh, less restrictive uh, alternatives to regulation. And it's not that those things have to be perfect, but that they, uh, if they work well enough, that they really do um, provide a way for the government to um, uh, protect their interests in an area without regulating unnecessarily. Um, so, for example, the, the tools uh, are getting better. The parental control tools, Adam, that you talk about, are a very powerful uh, alternative to censorship and, uh, and government filtering mandates. Uh, and those tools are also becoming more widely um, understood, and the policy debate is really focusing more on user empowerment. So that's a good thing. The second good thing is that we are, I think, in some sense, moving away from uh, techno panics, uh, things like uh, concerns um, about online predation that are uh, just not supported by the facts. Um, so those are good. The bad news, I think, is uh, on the one hand that um, kids' issues are being used as a sort of um, a device to accomplish other policy goals. People have, have realized pretty clearly that it's very difficult to regulate the Internet and to survive uh, First Amendment challenges. But if you can, if you can attach your reg regulation onto some concern about children, it's, it's both easy to get it through politically and also maybe easier to uh, survive court challenge. And I think we'll talk today about the fact that COPPA, which has been around for 10 years, uh, is being uh, seen as a vehicle for uh, expanding regulation of the Internet and, and in particular for essentially introducing age verification mandates through the back door. Um, so that, that's, a, I think, a pretty disturbing development, and that relates to the, the second disturbing development, which is that there is what, uh, what Adam and I are calling um, a war on advertising going on in Washington where um, there are, for, for two reasons, one for privacy concerns and, and second because some people just, just don't like advertising and think that it's inherently manipulative or wasteful. There are a lot of people who are attacking online uh, marketing and advertising and they see um, kids' issues as, as a vehicle for, for limiting those things. Okay, good. So let's, let's transition into a specific discussion about education because I heard that come up in all four of your uh, opening remarks there because it seems to me that you know, 10 years ago, one of the major changes here in this debate is that we really hadn't gotten serious about education and awareness building. We really weren't even discussing it. So what is it that changed recently, and why is it that suddenly online safety, education, media literacy, awareness building are on the radar screen in a big way? Let's, to start this discussion, have Perry and Todd sort of lead this, and then I'm going to ask uh, Jim and, and Barron to jump in and talk about why education approaches are ultimately probably more uh, legally safe. Uh, mm -hmm. But start with just the basics, Perry, about what's going on, why it's important. Maybe you can uh, also lead us into a discussion about the Menendez and Wasserman Schultz rule. Okay. Um, I saw a change, and I've been doing this since 1995, and we saw a radical change in spring of 2005 that has just been that avalanche that's, that's been driving all of this. It was the joint uh, release of both uh, Chris Hansen's To Catch a Predator on Dateline, at the same time, MySpace started to increase. 
So when I called MySpace for the first time, it was February 2005. They have 5 million users. No one had heard of them. And one of my teen angels, who became a teen angel later, was the first kid to get into trouble on MySpace. So <laughs> That's a claim to fame. It's <laughs> <laughs> her claim to fame for sure. It got her into Duke. Um, <laughs> so that when, when you talk to parents about cyber safety, and I talked about 5,000 parents a month, and whenever you talk to them, they're like, not my kid. But for the first time, they could go on to MySpace, and they could see that it was their kid who was posing in a very sexy way. It was their kid who was bashing someone. That plus the fear of To Catch a Predator started driving an interest that really has been increasing. Um, now kids are connected with their backpacks, pockets, and purses more than we were ever as big corporations. So they're connected through cell phones and smartphones and iPhones and iTouches and all of the computers, handheld devices, Xbox has a webcam, so the kids are ever on. And because of that, and the parents are ever on, so now all of a sudden the keep a computer in a central location just doesn't cut it, unless you're going to tell them to keep a cell phone in a central location and their handheld DS. Um, so that the old tried and true tips that everybody said, oh, it's okay, not my kid, now they realized it was their kid, and if not their kid, it was their kid's best friend. And it's not an easy task. So unless we start feeding the filter between their ears, everyone's in trouble. Hmm. So when we held the first um, event, it was, I guess, 2000. Um, it was maybe October 2002 when the White House held a big event. And I was the only Internet speaker. So it was child protection, and I was it. Um, and the president spoke, and, and, and the then-president spoke, and Colin Powell. And the whole issue was, how do we protect children? And only one out of 60 speakers was Internet-based. And now we realize that wherever we are, whatever we're doing, it crosses those borders without people realizing it's crossing borders. Mm -hmm. um, so unless we start looking at it, it's a real issue. And in the beginning, the, all the funding went to curriculum. We need to do a curriculum at a time where none of the teachers can put another curriculum into schools. Um, it wasn't working very well. It wasn't relevant. didn't move. And so everyone said, well, there is a curriculum, so if you've got something else to offer, we've already got it covered, which caused a lot of us who've been in the space for a long time to say, wait a minute. It was always crime-related um, because of the fear without any access to the real numbers. My only concern is, and I was part of the, as you know, part of the uh, – the MySpace Berkman Center task force is a lot of the research that's coming out are, is, comes from research of kids where the parents are asked if their kids can answer questions. Now tell me how many kids are going to be honest about what's happening to them online. So the numbers we get from our teen angels where the teens ask questions of other teens, we find are a little bit higher in a lot of these areas, not on the sexual predation quite as much, but on sexting and a lot of the sexual exploitation issues. So we have to be aware of that. There were two bills um, that have been launched, one in the House and one um, on the, um, in Congress. Menendez, the AWARE Act, uh, is uh, the SAFE Act is Menendez. And it came out a little bit before Wasserman, Schultz's, and Culberson's bill, which is called the AWARE Act. Um, and I have to brag for a moment. One of my teen angels, one of my first five, grew up, went to law school, and actually helped draft the SAFE Act for Menendez, Brittany Bacon. Mm -hmm. um, 
So longer introductions, because she was a teen angel, she needed to put everything in there. Um, but aside from that, the difference is essentially $35 million over five years for Menendez, $25 million over five years for Wasserman Schultz. And both of them are giving oversight to DOJ. The Wasserman Schultz gives it to the Attorney General after consultation with uh, Health and Education. And uh, it's given to the Director of Bureau of Justice Assistance on Menendez. But it is not curricula-based. It is competitive. Prove to us that your stuff is good and it works. And then we'll give you more. So let me get Todd in here at this point because, Todd, you were also uh, instrumental in this as well as Perry in, in working this uh, on the Hill and with others. Um, talk to us about uh, the Menendez approach, what went into it. Uh, well, it actually it? started, um, I guess, uh, two and a half years ago with the Deleting Online Predators Act, or DOPA, which <laughs> Aptly named. was, yeah, very interesting. <laughs> um, and DOPA was uh, essentially... As you know, uh, the federal government has to have some sort of hook. Well, the hooks into schools are either Title I funding, IDEA funding, or E-rate funding. So what they did was they said, uh, what DOPA said was any school receiving E-rate funding, which is somewhere in the 80-plus percent every year, um, any school receiving E-rate funding must uh, ensure that students do not have the potential to communicate with predators. Well, the potential to could be when you're chatting with the uh, congressional, uh, sorry, the, the Library of Congress, one of their reference librarians, because there's potential. So essentially what DOPA would have done is shut down the Internet in any school receiving E-rate. Um, uh, a few of organization lobbyists went up and basically pushed extremely hard. Also, uh, an E-rate coalition here in D.C. that's uh, the administrators, the teachers, principals, uh, PTA, went up and has pushed very hard as well. That resulted in a, a substantial change to uh, legislation that Senate, former Senator Stevens, then Senator Stevens, um, uh, had moved through that basically said that any school receiving E-rate must provide uh, internet safety education. Completely benign, wide open, needs to be defined at a later date, um, but basically it, it got them the win that they wanted. They were protecting kids. So coming out of that uh, was a push on uh, how do we actually get a competitive program? How do we act? Oh, and I'm sorry. There was another piece of legislation that would have provided $5 million specifically to one Internet safety organization. And all the other Internet safety organizations had some issues with that. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> and those so, who don't ask for money from the Hill. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, exactly. <laughs> um, and so coming out of that was the push for there needs to be a competitive program, something that will anyone can apply for. Um, and so it percolated up and moved in different ways. Um, just to correct something that Perry said, it's $25 million per year over five years and $35 million per year over five years. Sorry. Um, <laughs> more money. Um, Part of which would, uh, a small chunk of which, I think like $5 million would per year would go towards research as well. The legislation, the 
the key thing about this legislation, besides that it will, lots of different organizations can try out different things. So Common Sense Media can try out, we're developing digital citizenship curriculum to uh, provide to teachers to integrate. Parry can be working on her um, teen angels. Um, other organizations are doing other things. But the key thing is there's reporting. So we'll actually have actionable data that says kids are learning, um, and it leaves it to the uh, department. They need to figure out what they're going to pull in. But the idea is they're going to actually report, and we're going to, in theory, have actionable data where we can go, you know, I'm sorry, that model's really not working. Look at your numbers. This one is amazing. We need to – so while, unfortunately, it's another couple of years, it'll allow us to start moving money into things that are really working well. Okay, let me get uh, Baron and Jim to, to jump in here and answer the question of this. You know, why is this approach potentially superior to regulatory approaches, federal versus state issue here, uh, things like that? Baron, you're itching right. to so, so just, just to make sure that everyone, everyone is clear, I mean, we're, we're basically talking about uh, a federal program that would take taxpayer money and uh, use it to fund uh, education and curriculum and awareness building efforts. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, that is, uh, I think, in our view, uh, a better approach to dealing with concerns about online child safety than, for example, uh, criminal sanctions or on the one hand or uh, filtering mandates on the other hand. So where these two um, things intersected recently was in this, this, this concern about online predation uh, has, has sort of morphed into a concern about online uh, bullying and harassment. And on, on one level, and this is the, the subject of the paper that Adam and I wrote that's, that's out front, on one level I think that's a really good thing because uh, there is a, a genuine concern about online bullying. I think that's much better supported by the facts than concerns about predation. O on the other hand, the, the, the response to this by some people on the Hill has been to um, sort of take the, the same approach that people were, were taking with uh, filtering mandates and just simply say, well, we can't filter this, but what we can do is create a federal felony. And we can start treating uh, kids, in particular, like felons. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, if, if, if the choice is between a federal felony or on the one hand or a censorship mandate on the other, and that's on one side, and the other side is a program of empowerment and education, I think the choice is pretty clear. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, these, these things, I think, tend to work better, uh, but they also uh, are much more consistent with free speech values. Jim? Well, the... There's a history of legislators trying to use a criminal sort of club to uh, encourage intermediaries to go clean up a problem that's seen on the Internet. And those approaches have consistently been struck down because of the chilling effect that overbroad regulation tends to have. So you saw the Communications Decency Act uh, be struck down 9 nothing by the Supreme Court, which I think made it did a lot to educate uh, policymakers, but um, there were some policymakers who wanted to try something a little bit narrower and go after harmful to minors content, and that bumped around the courts. That's been struck down as well. Um, <clears throat> you've seen uh, proposals at various levels, particularly in the states, to, but DOPA was another example, uh, of requiring that children be prevented from reaching a social networking site, or requiring that social networking sites do age verification to just figure out who, somehow figure out who is under 17 or under 16, and then ban 
um, the social networking site from accepting any of those users or requiring them to somehow contact a parent and get the parent to agree. And all these sorts of proposals wind up <clears throat> because there isn't a way, you know, on the Internet, no one knows you're a dog. There's not a way to be sure that somebody's a child. And the sorts of requirements tend to have the, the chilling effect of requiring authentication of everybody and not being particularly accurate. I want to get to an expanded discussion of that, so hold a little bit of that fire, Jim. But, but more, broadly, more broadly speaking, these kinds of regulations, as to criminalizing the individual conduct, uh, the most extreme example of this I've heard of this spring was the New Jersey Attorney General's Office. I think they're going to be pretty busy with lots of things given what's been going <laughs> on in New Jersey. But they actually, in, uh, I think, indicted a girl for sending an image of herself was an underage girl. The Nevada uh, actually brought charges against her. Yeah. She's 14. And that sort of approach is, you know, punishing somebody who obviously has no self-awareness of what it means to do this and what can happen. And as a lawyer, I've, I've helped lots of firm clients who, you know, someone has a daughter who's allowed her boyfriend to take some picture of her and then they break up and the boyfriend posts it online. And the, the Internet companies where this stuff is posted invariably respond quickly to get the material off the Internet. Uh, but you can get the material offline. The problem is if it's spread a lot of different places. But above all, you need to educate kids that they think it's, that somehow the Internet isn't a very public place. It's totally public, and you lose control of your own image if you allow yourself to be photographed in some sort of compromising way. And the most extreme example of this was actually in India where um, – I went about three years ago because um, uh, uh, students at a Tony Delhi High School, who were children of military officers actually, um, were 17 years old and the boyfriend filmed, used his cell phone to film himself and his girlfriend in flagrante delicto and then told a friend about it and made this image available and it was for sale on the eBay site in India. And the uh, eBay um, India executive or the eBay affiliate uh, executive found out about this, came on Monday morning, this happened over the weekend, came into the Delhi police at about 11 a.m. and figured out who was buying and selling these, the, this hyperlink, which was on the bazi.com site in India. And the Delhi police said, not so fast, you're coming, you're staying in jail. And he was stuck in a really, really rough Delhi jail for over a week, and I went over there to explain to the Indian government, did a survey of the internet liability rules in all the former uh, English Commonwealth countries that had advanced technology economies, which India has, and showed that you know, one of these things, namely the Indian law that required all due diligence to be taken under threat of criminal penalties with the CEO of the company personally criminally liable for any uh, obscene content was very different than the laws of the rest of the, the world. But that sort of approach, whether it be clubbing the 14-year-old the girl and charging her as though she were a child pornographer or attacking the Internet intermediary that's trying to do the right thing um, and holding the executive criminally liable, uh, th those sorts of approaches uh, are not nearly as effective as making people aware of what goes on online. Now, there are roles that all sorts of of entities can play in that, whether it be parents, it can be um, educational institutions, it can be public service announcements, it can also be ISPs who are increasingly providing child safety portions to their terms of use and their 
uh, their privacy policies with videos explaining what to do and what not to do. There are all sorts of educative roles that players in the Internet can, can play, but using the criminal code as a way to uh, shape behavior is almost sure to be struck down as unconstitutional and result in, in injustice. So it's really a question of figuring out what works and then calibrating it and treating this as a, an issue of self-understanding and, and respect. You don't put a picture of yourself up online naked as a 14-year-old if you don't understand what, what um, privacy and what the privacy of your own body is, is about, and you don't bully other people if you don't under, online if you uh, understand that you need to respect other people and that just because you're doing something online and you're semi-anonymous, you're somehow exempt or protected from, uh, from scrutiny. All that sort of, of common sense stuff needs to be uh, brought home to people when they sit in the privacy of their bedroom and they're, they're typing on the computer. So, Todd, you wanted to follow up something on the education point. Well, it, it's about uh, education versus uh, regulation in that um, there, a lot of regulation has been trying to require, as you say, age verification, require filters, require things like that. An important thing to realize is that parental controls technology only works to a certain age. Um, once you get around the age of hmm, 10 to 12, depending on how mature your child is, they're going to figure out how to get around it. That's one thing. Number, the other thing is if you place filters in the school or you place filters in the library, well, I'm going to go home or I'm going to go to my friend's house or I'm going to go somewhere else. Was it the Thornburg report that said building a fence isn't going to do anything because they'll get over the fence? Well, a better analogy is you can build a fence, but if you don't teach them how to swim, when they go to the ocean, what are they going to do? They're not going to have a clue. Right. And, so, and if I can just add one thing to that before we get into applications, I mean, at the end of the day, we, we are in a period of, of transition and shifting uh, expectations and attitudes towards technology and privacy and reputation. Uh, and, you know, th something, for example, like um, teaching kids uh, netiquette about what they should and shouldn't post on the Internet comes down to that, that, that great shift of expectations. And to think that we can somehow um, coerce better behavior through regulation or criminal sanctions, I think, is is really just kind of silly when you think about the, the, the problem that exists in terms of interacting with children. It really comes down to just educating them and making them better aware of what they're doing and what the consequences might be. So Perry and, and Todd, but any of you can answer this uh, if you feel comfortable. Um, what are the chances we get legislation this session along the lines of Menendez, Wasserman, Schultz versus something like the Sanchez bill, which is the criminalization approach? Do these things play along parallel tracks? Is there, are they debated alongside? Is there a possible merging of these efforts? Because sometimes when you hear their, the proponents of these things talk, they say these are not mutually exclusive. Could we get both, one or the other, none of the above? Perry? Um, I, I hope they won't be merged. Uh, I understand that Linda Sanchez has thrown her support behind the Wasserman Schultz bill. I am not a fan of what Linda Sanchez has done. Um, we have cyber harassment laws in all 50 states, and if I need legal help in order to go in and stop something that's a death threat or something that, that falls into what's criminal, I can deal with it on the state level. There's a cyber stalking bill that already exists, a law that already exists federally. I think we have what we need on that end. But we do not have what we need on putting money into the hands of people who are doing innovative things. 
There might be somebody in the middle of Ohio who came up with a program that's incredibly effective, and we need to be looking for what's effective. Mm -hmm. And so uh, although they'll probably run on separate tracks because they both deal with children and safety, I imagine someone's going to try to throw them together in hearings. But I hope that what ends up is going to be the the Wasserman, uh, Schultz, and Menendez look, because that's what we need. We don't need the Megan Meyer Act that Linda's been proposing. Todd, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, I could say that, that the both Menendez staff and the Wasserman Schultz staff are very aware of uh, the problems with the Sanchez legislation um, and also that those of us that do lobby up here will be paying attention very closely to make sure that, that doesn't get in because I fear that that would actually uh, torpedo the entire effort. Now, uh, whether or not we'll see it this session or next session all depends on Congress and the way that winds blow. Um, do I think that we will see it during the 111th Congress? Yes. Um, the, the, the Menendez and Wasserman Schultz bills are relatively similar. Um, uh, they um, and the other thing is this is a bipartisan issue. It really is. Um, you have such as uh, Senator Brownback on one side, uh, and then you have Bernie Sanders on the other supporting these. Um, it it really crosses boundaries for various reasons. Whether your concern is about pornography or violence or whatever, or your concern is about privacy and free speech. Um, very bipartisan, which allows it to move forward. Um, one major hurdle, though, is the price tag. Um, it's a lot of money. Um, it's a new program, and that always trips things up. Good. So let's move on to a discussion about uh, age verification, parental consent uh, notification, age ver uh, uh, COPPA, things like that. A lot been happening the last couple of years on that front. Um, to start off, I'm going to ask Jim to just say a few brief words because you played in the old COPPA battles back in the day, and I know Perry did too. So maybe some very brief background bringing us up to 2009 in terms of COPPA, why it was put on the books, and how maybe it's changing. Uh, well, last night I had dinner with Christine Varney, who was at that time the FTC commissioner who uh, w was worked closely with the, the FTC chairman at the time, Bob Potofsky, and decided to tackle Internet privacy as one of her issues. So she raised very effectively the visibility of this issue set. And it was pretty clear that some sort of regulation was going to happen of marketing to children. And there were examples of uh, shall we say, slightly sneaky things that with cartoon characters talking to children saying, you know, don't you want to give us your information to join our superheroes club or whatever online, some cartoon character would be reaching out to a child. It just seemed to be crossing the line and be, being exploitative. And the FTC actually brought a few enforcement actions before there was actually um, any regulation to say that this rose to the level of being an unfair business practice. Its harm outweighed its benefit to uh, consumers. And so with that writing on the wall, um, the uh, online and marketing industries decided that it was a good idea to protect children 
from these practices. Nobody agreed with them. And uh, from that was born remarkably quickly. I, it, I think the issue came up in July or something of, of, the, of 1998. So imagine right around now. And legislation was passed in September. 96. 90, no, it was 98 for COMP. 1997 was the kids.com letter. Yeah. And so, yeah, so this was 1998. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Elizabeth Frazee, you were involved in that for Disney way back then. <laughs> and um, the, I think there are some lessons from this. What COPPA does is it requires verifiable parental consent before children can provide personal information online. Overwhelmingly, when, when they're known to be children or the website is targeted to children. Overwhelmingly, sites don't do this because it's extremely burdensome and expensive to get the consent. Um, so what sites tend to do is not to target specifically to children, or sometimes there are business models. We've counseled hundreds of companies who wanted to do this, and they'll often partner with schools. The school will help get the consent, or else they'll have some place where parents go to sign up and allow their, their children to use these sites. But it's very narrow and very difficult to use. On the other hand, that population, kids under 13, there isn't very much reason to collect a lot of information from them. And so there are ways to do this with minimal uh, information collection. When you want to provide a richer experience and you want to, uh, for example, target educational content even to um, uh, kids that really is appropriate to their uh, background or their academic performance, whatever it is, you need to know something about them. So in the teenage model, uh, really the, this kind of dumbed down kid, uh, younger children's experience would be what we would see if we had COPPA um, uh, for uh, a teenage audience. The decision in, in COPPA was made actually with the support of uh, Planned Parenthood and NARAL at the time, it was a, even though the Republicans controlled the Senate, this was a Senator Richard Bryan bill from Nevada, and he was sympathetic, he was pro-choice, and so was willing to listen to the concerns of these groups. And they were really afraid that ch children couldn't get information, teenagers couldn't get information about birth control, just ba sort of basic information to avoid unwanted pregnancies if they had to go to their parents and ask for permission and then get information sent back to them. Um, and so they worked very hard along with, with the technology and marketing industries to limit COPPA to children under the age of 13. We're now seeing age verification proposals and the, the most uh, uh, tense one, Adam and I were both in North Carolina where Roy Cooper, who is a very um, uh, very strong, charismatic, yeah. strong politician who was just off attorney, of General, attorney, yeah, attorney General was just off of clearing the Duke lacrosse players and had tremendous press. And he stood up and gave the equivalent uh, in a hearing on, on his, uh, an age verification bill for, uh, for North Carolina that had already passed one house and was in the Senate in front of Dan Blue, who was a, a really serious. Uh, he was close to passing. Yeah. He was very close yeah. to passing. And uh, Roy Cooper stood up and gave the equivalent of a, an opening statement before a jury. The cameras were there. It was masterful. But it glossed over a whole lot of points. And uh, he then went away, and Adam and I stood up and explained that, well, COPPA, there actually are some First Amendment interests that kids 17 years old have in receiving information that uh, COPPA doesn't have an age verification requirement. It's more if you know or have very strong reason to know you're dealing with a child under 13, then there are limitations on what you do. And 
cited case law, including in the Fourth Circuit where North Carolina is located, and explained that there really was a risk that this would be unconstitutional. And fortunately, Chairman Blue cares about uh, the First Amendment and cared about passing legislation that was really going to be effective rather than something that would get a great headline. And so, in the end, North Carolina did not pass the age verification proposal there. And we so also pointed out it was a federal law and not something the states could necessarily take. Absolutely. Yeah, yes. that was a big point you made. There. A dormant com there are dormant commerce clause issues with specific states jumping up. Thank right. you for yeah. bringing me <laughs> back. I remind you of your brilliant comments on North Carolina. 1996. <laughs> but um, we've seen a few other age verification type proposals, but when MySpace negotiated an agreement with 48 state AGs to do a variety of things that were not age verification to protect children online that set a, a new standard. Um, and when the Berkman Center, working with Perry and others, uh, showed that age verification doesn't really work um, and isn't a good tool, we've not yet seen a state actually go and adopt age verification. I'm very confident, as is Adam, that it would be struck down if, if a state did try to do this, but that approach has not prevailed. In Most recently, New Jersey had a um, proposal that was... Jim, I'm going to have Baron and I did that paper on New Jersey and the Illinois okay, bill, cool. so we'll get that in a second. Yeah. I want to get... That's the other big... That's yeah, the other big, yeah big I want to bring that up, but Perry... You were involved in these fights about COPPA going way back as well. And right. In the days when I used to earn a living as an Internet privacy lawyer, now, <laughs> now, now the field is open entirely to Jim. Um, I, I represented a lot of the members of the industry when COPPA came on board. And it started with kidscom.com, which was a website <coughs> that had said to kids, we're not going to share your information with anyone else, and then asked them if they like blue sneakers more than red sneakers. And CME sent a letter to the FTC in July of, of 1997 saying, fraud, this isn't good because they're collecting this information from kids, it's not the right thing to do, and do something about it. And the FTC said, well, there aren't any rules on this one, so we're not going to do anything bad to Kidscom, but don't do it anymore. And we've been looking at these issues, and we think it's important that um, the websites ask the kids to get their parents' permission before they start giving this information out. So get your act together. And they did a poll to find out which of the sites that were dealing with kids under the age of 13 were doing this, and then turned around and said, okay, you're not doing a very good job, but we don't want to put any legislation in there. We really don't want to put any legislation in Get your act together. And everybody in the industry said, not a problem. And then they came out and they said, okay, we just did another poll, and it turns out you're even worse than you were the yeah. first time. Nobody's <laughs> doing anything. And we need to do something. And at that time, they presented a lot of research before the Hill on kids and their ability to make decisions. And they said that if you're thir 13 and older, you have the ability to make decisions better than if you were under the age of 13. And that was part of the reasoning for setting it under the age of 13. But what came out wasn't just don't market to kids and collect their information so that now you can sell them cigarettes or whatever it is we're not supposed to be selling kids. It came out that it was both unfair trade practices, collecting information, lying about what you're using it for and can't get it without parents' consent, or the kids being able to share any information themselves. So what became collection of data mm -hmm. from kids isn't just collection, it's can the kids talk to each other? Absolutely. Can they talk to their cousin from Wisconsin through IM or emails or postcards or text or, well, internet-based text, sure. anything that allows them to use the internet to communicate with anyone else or post information um, online in a way that shares personally identifiable information. And that put the internet industry out of business. So it, it coincided. So when the law came in, it was April 21st and the month before the internet had crashed. 
So all of the kids sites were out there, the head bones, free zones, all of those fun, really cool middle market sites of the world died. And luckily for us, the Disneys and Nickelodeons and the rest had enough money to stay open during this time. Kids couldn't talk to each other. You couldn't market. I had no problem with direct marketing to kids and collecting information. But even if the sites were being very good about filtering and monitoring and knowing what the kids were doing, there was no exception to allow the sites who were doing a good job to avoid having to go through verifiable parental consent. We did a lot of surveys of parents, and the parents said, well, we're not giving that consent, not because we don't want kids to do it, but because I'm not giving my credit card to somebody online, even though they're not going to charge it, and why should I do it, and who cares anyway? So it cost us a lot. Then you got the Club Penguin model where parents are willing to pay. You had a credit card which started to change it. COPPA now will change. And an interesting thing we should note is Canada, uh, the, the Canadian privacy commissioners pretty much across the board have called me, because I married a Canadian with a nonprofit up there, have called me and said, we really kind of like COPPA, but we want to take it further. So you're not going to be able to market within a game by using a cartoon character that's known with the company to try to sell trips or talk to the kids if you know roughly how old the kids are, which scares the dickens out of me. So... Well, that's one way COPPA can be expanded. Another way, Barron, is what we talked about in our paper, which Jim alluded to in the New Jersey and uh, North Carolina and Illinois approaches, raising the age up significantly to include all teens. And, well, I don't need to belabor it. You go ahead and talk to well, us about so, what's... So what, what Perry just explained is exactly why COPPA is um, perceived to be a useful vehicle. It gets really back to what Todd was saying earlier about DOPA, right? The idea was that, you know, you needed, we need to have a way of, of clamping down on kids' ability to communicate online. Uh, and so COPPA, uh, in this way that most people don't realize, unless they really understand what collection means under COPPA, COPPA does allow you to do that because COPPA requires uh, verifiable parental consent before kids get access to essentially really uh, any Web 2.0 or social networking site that allows them to communicate or post uh, a profile or share information uh, in that way. So the, 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 what we're calling the COPPA 2.0 proposals that, um, that Todd and, and uh, or that Jim and Adam talked about originally in Georgia and North Carolina, have been proposed now in New Jersey uh, and Illinois, and a, and a somewhat similar bill was actually just passed in Maine. Um, so in, in a nutshell, the New Jersey bill basically just expands COPPA and says it applies up to the age of 17. Um, the Illinois bill goes a, a little bit uh, differently, and it says that we're just going to apply this to any social networking site that allows you to uh, post, allows other users to post on your profile. So what's really sort of insidious about this is that um, it's not just that it burdens the communications of, of kids. I mean, that's, that is, I, I think, a, a legitimate concern. We really should be worried about the, the fact that kids may get shut out of um, mainstream communications and may be denied access. But what's even worse than that is that precisely because of what uh, Jim was saying earlier, uh, the fact that, you, you know, on the Internet nobody knows whether you're a dog or, in this case, a, a puppy. Um, if you run a site that has, for example, a large number of teen users, you may feel compelled or may actually be compelled by the law to start age verifying all your users mm -hmm. because you don't know. Right, So it's, it, it's not just that it applies when you actually know that you're collecting information from a kid, as, for example, when they've, they've given you their age and setting up a profile, but it would apply uh, pretty clearly to a site that was adolescent-oriented. Um, but, but the central problem we point out is that this, this is just not about the ability of kids to understand what they're doing. That's, that's an important distinction. It speaks to their, their rationality and their vulnerability, but it's also the fact that as kids reach a certain age of 13 or so, 
they do start to share their interests with, with, uh, with adults. And it becomes really difficult to say, well, we're going to carve out this area of the Internet and say this is just the, the teen Internet. And so here we're going to require age verification, but we're not going to require it everywhere else because, as I think everybody in this room probably knows, the Facebooks, the MySpaces of the world, and all the other social networking sites, including blogs that simply have that kind of functionality, um, will be used by large numbers of adults as well, uh, adolescents as well as adults. So if you start requiring age verification there, you're essentially imposing that on the entire Internet. And then all of a sudden you, you have suddenly wiped out online anonymity, which is a really serious First Amendment concern. So uh, again, that's why these, this COPPA 2.0 approach is a way of riding on COPPA as an existing vehicle for doing something that would never pass uh, political muster if it were done in a, in a more overt and obvious way. Jim wanted to mention something briefly about something else happening in New Jersey. Yeah, New Jersey is now the AG's office is actually off of the idea of, of extending COPPA Good. to teenagers, and the measure in Illinois they must have read our paper, Baron. That's the only yeah, one I think, well, you guys did a very nice presentation in Thank Illinois, you. I gather. But um, New Jersey is now, um, the AG's office is now looking at a anti-cyber harassment uh, ban, a ban on sending inappropriate communications to uh, minors, and then a warning and complaint system that would be imposed on the whole Internet for any entity located anywhere in the world would be required by New Jersey to have a specific complaint process where, where uh, users could report abuse. And many uh, Internet companies do this already. I mean, AOL, which is a longtime client of mine, has not only had this feature for more than 10 years, but has gone around, actually has people available to testify when law enforcement wants to make out a case about an, an AOL user. And it's the model. It's really yeah. the, 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 the prime model in all of this. Yeah, and, and so there's this active cooperation already when there, at, when there are cases, but there's a question of can one state tell everybody on the Internet that they need to have this sort of complaint procedure to do exactly X, Y, Z. And what's been interesting in the dialogue with the New, New Jersey Attorney General's Office, the coalition I represent includes all the major broadband ISPs, virtually cable and telco-based, um, AOL, Yahoo, Google, Facebook, a whole bunch of, of other kinds of sites that like monster.com where they have discussion boards that could be deemed to be a social networking site in a definition. Um, and um, everybody's all in favor of actually having procedures so people can complain. And I think the New Jersey Attorney General's office is understanding that they can't be too prescriptive, that they will run into dormant commerce clause problems or First Amendment problems. And uh, the jury's out about where this, this negotiation will end, but um, there may be something interesting that develops in New Jersey that actually becomes law. But the, after their sort of initial um, certainty that they had the right answer and the whole Internet needed to respond, the AG's office is now viewing this in a more nuanced way. So that's a development that, that may be interesting in the fall. Any uh, other states taking that approach? Um, well, not yet. And so the question, the question is always at the, the state level, if one state adopts something, then lots of other states can follow. If you look at security breach notification, that's probably the, the in the privacy and security space, the most star, uh, stark of these examples are cyberbullying, cyber harassment. They're ideas that just move and they can change a little bit and it can be difficult to comply with them, hence the need for a coalition to try to keep them more or less in, in, in a way that you can comply on a 50-state basis. But um, I think 
if this moves in New Jersey, we could see something that becomes a model. And so it's very important that it be done right if it moves at all uh, so that we don't have you know, different states requiring that the get help button be red as opposed to blue or whatever it is on a, on a site. But um, uh, one approach that's really bizarre, Maine adopted in a totally weird um, way at the last minute, a regulation of so-called predatory marketing to children, which is an outright ban, strict liability. It's blatantly unconstitutional, but you're not allowed to collect personal information from um, minors online, regardless of whether you know they're a minor or not. And uh, that one's very vulnerable to a First Amendment and to a dormant Commerce Clause challenge. And there'll be some dialogue, I think, with the Maine Attorney General's office about whether they want to agree to, to, to stay this and agree to a stay before it goes into effect. That's enforced through a private right of action. So it would be a, a potentially uh, a, uh, with statutory damages, potentially a, a very negative thing with frivolous lawsuits being filed where no one's been harmed at all. Um, but that's another, I think, very harmful model. And uh, I'm not sure that anything else that's really distinctive is passed this year. Um, are you guys aware of anything else? Well, I was going to mention a couple of others. There's questions now about identity hijacking, online defamation. There's sort of a merge, emerging of these issues, uh, which are somewhat related, in, at least in terms of remedies or approaches to how to deal with them, oftentimes by deputizing the middleman to do more about them, even if there are federal restrictions that would make that difficult. But that seems to be a model that's catching on for a lot of other types of concerns like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a concern. In the interest of time, because I do want to get the audience in this, I want to ask briefly Todd and Perry to help me just briefly reel off um, what's been happening uh, with task forces, online safety task forces, and with some other government activity happening right now at agency level. Um, Todd, the most recent task force was one that you were actively involved in, your organization was. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about Point Smart Click Safe? Uh, <clears throat> Just sort of maybe the hot, very broad yeah. highlights. PointSmart ClickSafe was um, brought together by uh, the cable industry um, primarily, and it involved industry players both on the ISP level, the content level. Um, so you had your Google, Yahoo, AOL. Um, uh, a lot of players. A lot of players. <laughs> and what was different about this task force is that it was – looking specifically at what can industry do to be better players? What are the commonalities? What are the things, what are the best practices that need to be there? Um, and instead of just looking at all across the board, very specifically, what can industry do? At the same time, they did provide a couple of recommendations of what government can do to help industry do a better job. Um, PointSmart released their report last month, and um, it's going to actually be ongoing. Um, now, how do we get the industries to implement the various best practices? Before I forget, Todd, put in a plug right now for your excellent new digital media literacy report from Common Sense Media. It's on the table back there. <laughs> it has some good recommendations. I've not, there's no payola for me saying no, that. No. It's a good report. Um, Perry, talk to us about Berkman Center report briefly. Uh, Jim already mentioned it came about uh, 48, 49 attorney generals. Uh, what really wanted to have MySpace do something? Right, the attorney generals got mad at MySpace, and MySpace came back saying, age verification, we don't think it's doable, uh, but we will put together the leading experts in the United States as we see them, and we'll have them look at the issue and and there'll be a report at the end of the year. So 29 of us were brought into the task force. We paid our own way to go to the meetings. We weren't paid to go there. 
Um, and in my case, I had to bring a lot of teen angels at additional cost. Um, and so we looked at the issue, and at the end of the year, it was age verification just doesn't really work. Uh, we looked at some of the technologies, but in a very handcuffed way because none of the technology companies would allow us to really kick the tires and see what was behind the uh, magic curtain. And so I hope the NTIA working group, Good uh, transition. Which, thank you, Good thank transition. You, a few of us are, are part of that. And, Adam, I was thrilled because uh, I, when it comes to credibility in this space, I don't think many people have the credibility that I think you have and, you. and, and, and your organization behind you. You've been looking at this issue for a very long time. You do it the right way. You stay out of the politics. You stay clean thank on you. point. And I think that's important. We have at Wired Safety uh, put together the Stop Cyberbullying Coalition. Um, Microsoft, Disney, uh, MySpace, Facebook, it's free to play. Everybody's part of it, and it's looking at how we can get the word out to kids on, on cyberbullying issues, how we can share content, how we can really do something on best practices and across the board. So that's something that Wired Safety is doing and hope we're going to work together on. Last is um, we're looking at child protection across the board, and there's something that's a, a kind of bizarre that um, we've been looking at. I've been looking at it since 1997, which is online gambling. Hmm. Um, and I, I used to represent casinos in the olden days when I used to earn a living. Um, and in my first book in 1997, I had a chapter called Are You Raising a Riverboat Gambler? And talking to parents about <laughs> kids, kids gambling online, right. losing money, not getting paid, parents not knowing what they're doing. Right. And uh, Barney Frank has now put out a, a, a new bill that's looking at the interesting task of legalizing online gambling for the purposes of regulating it. Because right now, if I've got senior citizens or kids who are on there, I don't have any law that allows me to do anything about it because essentially it's illegal. And so I need it to be legalized so that I can regulate it and keep kids off and make sure there's no fraud and no money laundering. So we are looking at that, and I have a large white paper that will be out in the next month or so uh, with independent and investigators and researchers Look who are going to tell to me what exists. Good. So briefly, just to reel off a couple of the other things, Perry mentioned the NTIA task force. That's currently meeting right now. Mm -hmm. has a year, basically, to produce its report. Also unpaid, and you pay your own expenses. Yes. Uh, that seems to be a common theme for any government uh, task force on task online force. safety. It doesn't, it's <laughs> not, a, it, not lifestyles of the rich and famous. Uh, <laughs> um, the, uh, that task force is currently meeting. It's going to have four or five uh, sessions on parental control technology issues, uh, child pornography issues, data retention, and education and media literacy. That will wrap up work sometime next year. Um, by June 4th. By June 4th. Um, thank you, Todd. Uh, the FCC recently had its notice of inquiry on the Child Safe Viewing Act. Several folks here filed on that issue, and that report is due, I believe, in August? Uh, deadline of August 29th. All right, Todd, you are the man about dates. Yeah, so this is why I get you here. Um, uh, FTC investigations, uh, any of you feel free to jump in. Uh, Baron, in particular, uh, expedited copper review has been announced, uh, moving from, I believe, 2015 to 2010. Uh, Baron, you want to mention the virtual worlds investigation? Uh, Congress and its appropriations for the FTC also asked the agency to look into virtual worlds. Uh, that is, things like Second Life. Uh, and it, it, it appears, although other people on the panel may know m more about this than I do, that, um, that this will probably come out and suggest that what's needed is some sort of age verification uh, system to ensure that uh, you know, Second Life has a teen area and an adult area and that uh, kids are not allowed to get into the adult area where there could be communications that might be harmful to them. Good. And, and that can work if you have to pay to use the site, which typically happens with, with a, a lot of these Second Life sites, so that credit card verification there um, can work or some sort of payment 
verification can work, whereas in the free site environment it doesn't. So that there are there are models of a, a number of these these second life sites. I've represented a few in this inquiry um, where they will have a a teen uh, appropriate area. They won't let people who appear to be, and again, they can never be sure, who appear to be under the age of 13 who don't have a credit card, for example, they won't let them onto the site at all. Uh, but for people who register as, as teenagers, um, they, they, they have a place to basically channel teenagers. Again, it can't be verified, but they can get people, and it seems to work pretty well. So, to Jim, just to play devil's advocate really quick before we throw it to the audience, get your questions ready. Um, isn't that the model that the court struck down with COPA? And credit card-based justification or authorizations were thought to be not sufficient to verify the age of someone. Sure, so it's, now some it's not. It's it. not perfect. No, it's not at all. But it's also voluntary. It's not mandated. So yeah, it might be unconstitutional if it were required. But as a best practice, uh, there are you know there there are ways to maybe with. 80% accuracy or 75% accuracy um, to help uh, keep, well, first of all, to keep people who don't have access to a credit card completely off the site um, entirely. Um, you Which isn't its own issue. Right. So if you don't have enough money for a credit card, you can't use all of these places. Right, or if you know. register with uh, with your birth date as being under, you know, indicating you're under the age of 13, um, you're out of luck, and you can drop a cookie to make sure that the person can't come back. I guess there's a problem that someone does a, has a typo, and they've accidentally clicked in the wrong place. But or you're a 13-year-old kid that knows how to get rid of cookies. And <laughs> look at MySpace. Seriously, look at MySpace yeah. and look at how many 99-year-olds there are on MySpace. It's amazing. Didn't know there were that many 99-year-olds alive. <laughs> but let's let's, let's yeah. get some hands for questions, please. If there's going to be a microphone that will come around. I ask you please to stand, identify yourself and your affiliation. This ma'am here at the white sweater was first. Uh, we're getting a microphone. If you could just please wait till that comes around, right there in the middle. While he's bringing that up, just wanted to mention sure. there are two other state laws, state bills moving. In Texas, there's an online impersonation one. That's right. Yeah. And in Oregon, there's a cyberbullying one uh, that are in the beginning phases of. Right. That Texas bill is what I was referring to about uh, identity hijacking, uh, same idea, but that's right. That seems to be an emerging trend in the states. Ma'am, please state your name and affiliation. Hi, I'm Cindy Grady. I'm a student at New York Law School up in Manhattan, interning with the FCC. And I guess my concern was you're talking about 13-year-olds getting on things with credit cards. How about if you make a teen area the concerns with people who are over 18 and predatory getting into those areas if you're creating teen-only areas? Well, uh, that's certainly right, but then if you enforce, well, again, this is voluntarily, you enforce a no, um, you know, a tighter content control mo model and you monitor or, you know, anybody who's posting, um, any, has any posting that's, that might be a proposition or that is in some way inappropriate for a teenage audience uh, with a complaint gets kicked off of the site. So uh, that what's not useful is to channel people if you have too broad a universe uh, to, to say, okay, everybody, here's the teen area. Come and, you know, come and find teenagers here. But if you actually have a moderated environment, there are things that you can do to protect um, uh, people there. And this, again, this depends upon people paying for the service. Otherwise, you can't pay for the monitor. Uh, you can also have the community, um, a community complaint system where you solicit complaints and solicit feedback, for example, before anybody can post a um, 
uh, a new kind of weapon or a new kind of clothing, and it, it has to be peer-reviewed by multiple peers. There are ways to do this that that um, aren't foolproof, and there still will be complaints, but that narrow the opportunities for somebody to do something inappropriate. But the thing is that uh, while Jim talks about teens, uh, that's not really what you're trying to separate out. You're really trying to separate out uh, under the age of 12, and that's where it has been somewhat effective. You look at Webkins, you look at Club Penguin, which they are moderated uh, on some levels. They are, you can only put in a certain text, and so there's ways, however, kids come up with new words and get around it. But the teen market is not where the real concern is. It's younger than that. Um, and, and there's actually scientific reason for this of cognitive social development. So, But just to be clear here, that's under existing law, that's all you're required to, to separate. And that works reasonably well for the reasons that Todd mentioned that we talked about earlier. There is a concern about people wanting to try to segregate teens from uh, from you know, older adults, and there are ways in which you know, regulation could try to coerce that. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's not clear to me that that's going to work um, or that it would be such a great thing. Um, and, and one of the things you have to keep in mind here is that it, it's one thing if we're talking about the, the Second Lives or the MySpaces or the Facebooks of the world, but the reality is we're at the end of the day we're talking about social networking functionality that is now widely distributed across the Internet. So, I mean, th this is the point that, um, that, that, that Jim is making here about cost. So if, if, if you're Second Life and you're having people pay to use your site, well, one, you already have the credit card. Two, you can probably pay for some sort of filtering, which can be quite expensive, and Perry probably has better numbers on that than anybody. But at the end of the day, if every website, every blog around the world that integrates a social networking uh, functionality has to take on a responsibility for doing that kind of screening or filtering or segregation of users, the effect on the media landscape and Internet culture would be enormous. And so I mean, that, that very concretely is the, the First Amendment harm that we're worried about here. And I think, I think we need to figure out what we're balancing here. It's not adults talking to teens. They talk to teens all the time. We're talking about the creeps here. Mm -hmm. um, and the creeps may be other teens who are being creepy, or it might be adults. Absolutely. So what we need to do is give the kids tools so that they can lock out everybody but their best friends, mm -hmm. make sure that the sites are responding to complaints that this is a creep and he's doing something they're not supposed mm -hmm. to do no matter what his age is. A lot of education, a lot of tools, a lot of responsibility, moderation practices, best practices on the part of the industry. Less than age verification. Um, so unless we give them the tools and education to be able to implement it and teach the industry what they need to do so the moderators are certified, they know what they're dealing with, so if a suicide uh, complaint comes up and, or a predator complaint comes up or, gee, are you a virgin kind of stuff comes up, they know what to do. That will give us the solution we're looking for because what we're seeing is most of the time when the kids actually meet someone in real life, they know they're meeting an adult long before they go to the meeting. We had another question back here. And seriously, the, the big problem is, is not the creeps. It's tragic when it happens, but the huge problems are the peer-on-peer, -peer, the 16-year-old on the 12-year-old, the 17 on the 13. And so if you're going to try and block out anyone that's a minor, you're completely missing. And if I can make one brief point, though, while we're getting the mic up in the front, uh, the, the key thing that Adam and I stress in our paper about cyberbullying is that, that that word is misused. So uh, Linda Sanchez's bill that we talked about earlier is actually not about cyberbullying primarily. It's about cyber harassment because cyberbullying is really kid on kid. Mm -hmm. So that's a very different concern from talking about adults uh, mm -hmm. uh, really targeting kids and, and maybe driving them to suicide, uh, as it at least appeared to be the case with the Megan Meyer story. That, you know, maybe there's a way to craft a law that would deal 
deal with that specific problem. But otherwise, we're either talking about cyber harassment generally of adults on adults, which is you know really, really hard to distinguish from simple free speech, or we're talking about the problem of cyber bullying, which, as Perry you know, talked about earlier, is really ultimately a problem of education and, and remedies through psychology in schools. Let's get this question from Rob Stoddard. Thanks, Adam. Rob Stoddard with the National Cable and Telecommunications Association. First of all, congratulations to you and PFF. This is a great discussion today Thank you. and on your ongoing work. My question is really for Perry, and anybody else is welcome to jump in as well. Perry, I want to ask you this. It's an unbiased question, so I'm not trying to advocate it for you. <laughs> but I've heard you say a couple of times early on that it's not about curriculum anymore. But I know in some of the work that we've done over the last year or two, looking at, for instance, what's going on in places like Virginia, some state models that are being held up in terms of school-based programs. And we have heard, I think, from some parents and education groups that maybe it is about the curriculum. And there's discussion about federal funding, creation of national standards, and a kind of a national-based curriculum. Reconcile those two formats. Thank you. That was a good question. It actually was on my list and something I was supposed to talk about. So mm -hmm. thank you. That was good. Um, you got my note. Um, it, it, so when we're talking about curriculum, it's not this big curriculum that everybody does it exactly the same way and you have to have, you know, 26 weeks and everybody sits for an hour and does it. <laughs> it is a matter of materials, resources, and approaches that are based on educational standards and cyber safety information media literacy standards that we can look at and we're turning and that's really what Menendez and all of the rest is what do we need to do and how do we do it so it's not funding two three million dollar five million dollar kind of curriculum that everybody uses it's funding the pieces that schools can use to educate parents to educate kids etc in fact our stop cyberbullying toolkit comes out for back to school and it's got a million dollars worth of stuff in it free for schools they can use any way they want to and that's really where things are going. Learning objects, approaches, different ways of doing it. You guys have been doing great stuff. Virginia's got mandatory uh, curriculum in this. We're going to see a lot more of that, I think, in a lot of the other states as they're looking at it. I think somebody uh, – I did something with Newsweek, and they came up with uh, – I think they said there were 13 states that have something that relates to this. And I think that's what we need to look at. And all of us who have been doing it for a long time need to share what we've got and those new players to the market who can do it in a really special way need to let us know what they've got, and all of us need to join together to make sure that all kids everywhere are safer and smarter online. And, you know, the curriculum is, is a loaded term. Um, <laughs> what what uh, I believe Perry was talking about of earlier was the model of the 26-week, everyone do an hour, et cetera. What a lot of people are doing, common sense included, is developing curriculum that educators can use to integrate into their existing work. So the history professor, while they're using the internet to have the kids look into Egypt, there's also lessons going on at the same time. We're demoing uh, right now through uh, Buffett Foundation grant. We're developing through MacArthur grant. We actually launched a program back in November that has grown well beyond our, our expectations, and there is a very big demand. Um, uh, we're hearing from parents and from educators, we need material. We need something that's clear, that's concise, but we need something that is five-minute that I can integrate, or I want to do an entire 40-minute presentation, and that's what they really need. Again, the, the thing is that there's different communities. Fairfax is going to be different than Loudoun. Um, and they're right next door. One might have a problem with cyberbullying. One might have problems with downloading illegal files. I might have a follow-up, Todd, but let's see if there's another question here. Okay. Right up front. And so read my paper. <laughs> <laughs>
Hi, uh, Adam Connor from Facebook. Um, one of the things I think that's interesting about education, we talk a lot about students, but how do we educate, for instance, law enforcement professionals, prosecutors, people who are dealing in this arena afterwards? I know for those that are lucky enough to know Perry, she's able to work with them, but not every law enforcement officer in America has her cell phone number. So how can we scale that kind of educational I component? I would beg to differ with <laughs> you on that one. Yeah. To, to let them know about the tools they may have available as well. There, actually, that's a great question, Adam. The... the uh, ISP industry actually has done lots of trainings. I mean, AOL is the first to do this, but um, I, uh, broadband ISPs and large-scale narrowband ISPs work very closely with law enforcement. They will go, they will, first of all, brief typically their local FBI agents who do computer crime work. They'll brief the state AG's office. Uh, they'll go around and do, uh, speak at law enforcement events. Um, there's a fair amount of, of education just about how to ask for evidence, how to look for and figure out who's doing what on the Internet um, that um, the ISP industry has down in a pretty good, uh, uh, almost little train-the-trainer kind of, of curriculum. And it's not hard for uh, social networking sites to do the same thing, and I, I strongly encourage it. I think that it's, it's working together in a practical way uh, for the incidents that really are law enforcement incidents. And keep in mind that's a tiny fraction of the universe of stuff we're talking exactly. about today. But it's vitally important to be able to work quickly and to uh, help agents go about finding solutions because they've got a very serious and difficult job to do often with minimal resources. On the other hand, proposals like the um, – uh, Lamar Smith, uh, uh, I can't remember what name it has this year, but perennially the House Judiciary Committee uh, Republicans introduce a data retention bill requiring um, Internet uh, search. Actually, in fairness, there are Democrats who co-sponsor it, but it's, it's usually a, a House uh, Judiciary vehicle. Originally, uh, former Attorney General Gonzalez strongly advocated this. It's a requirement that Internet companies keep IP addresses of everybody who's used the site for a one- or two-year period. It's always invoked... Uh, as a way of catching child predators, but there is no restriction on how the information can be used. It could be used, for example, in employment cases. If an employee is traced going around the Internet and they're in a dispute with their employer, it can be used in divorce cases. Um, it can be used uh, to show lack of, of duty of care by, a, uh, for example, a company that's released a product that they didn't go around and, and look for information. Uh, this sort of data is not limited for child protection, and indeed the Department of Justice, when in the Gonzales era, it looked at proposing a data retention mandate. There was a discussion within the department about whether to limit the use of those that information, the data retention, uh, its IP address uh, information, just for child safety obligations. And the task force, of course, decided that no, they wanted it for all law enforcement investigations, so tax investigations, you name it. Um, and Divorce so lawyers. <laughs> well, that, but that's not the department's job, but but enforcing but, uh, the problem is once you collect the data, a lot of people can gain access. Absolutely, and that's so the problem, and right? if but you look at the internet users, point zero one percent are engaged in crimes against children, and all the rest of us are going to have our 
traces around the internet saved for a year or two years in case some litigant wants it. And it's right. a, a, a serious let's get and As, and as we're looking at this, um, Adam, as you know, we have something called the socially safe seal. So sites are going to have to step up to best practices, and if they do, which includes a law enforcement investigator's guide, which is modeled off of AOL that I helped write a million years ago. Um, and it lets law enforcement know what you're collecting, how long you keep it, how to get it from yeah. you, uh, that will help them understand how to do this and educate them. Um, and there are lots of different law enforcement agencies, groups, task forces, and, and working groups that get this information out very quickly. The Internet Crimes Against Task Forces, a lot of the security alliances move it very quickly. And the more we can educate law enforcement, the faster we can act on legitimate crimes, whichever they are, whether it's true ID theft or financial crimes or crimes against children, crimes against adults, and find out ways to protect the data of the people where it needs to be protected. And that's just a matter of educating the industry and letting everyone in law enforcement know, even if all they have is an AOL dial-up, that they can actually conduct an investigation because the companies that know what they're doing and the cable industry and the rest are helping them by making it easier. How did you want to say something on that point real quick? Yeah, the, there's a fundamental problem with your question in that you're asking, what do we do about educating law enforcement? Law enforcement is when the crime has happened. What we really need to be doing is we need to be educating educators. We need to be involving the school psychologists, the school counselors. We need to be involving the uh, librarians who are media, media specialists. We need to be educating parents so that we can prevent from ever happening. Additionally, a lot of people like to uh, have law enforcement go in and, and talk to kids and talk to parents. Well, the problem is that you then start assuming, you start immediately going, the problem is that you then start assuming, you start immediately going, oh, that's crime related. Well, my kid doesn't do that. It's always not my kid, right? Um, and so while educating law enforcement is very important, especially because very often law enforcement, you know, comes in and, and has no idea that it's even a crime and so poo-poos it and all evidence is gone. If we actually spend money on properly educating teachers who are daily dealing with these issues, with school counselors and involving this and realizing that this is a health issue, it's a mental health issue. But just I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. And, Todd, this is where maybe we, we differ a little bit. It's very, very important that we educate, we empower parents, we empower the kids, we get the industry involved, we have all of the tools we need in place, et cetera. But law enforcement plays a very important role because there are many, many crimes that do occur online. And we need to enable them. We need to give them access. We need to make sure that in our attempt to make sure that there's a correction of information that's been out there, the hype, that we don't forget that there are crimes out there and our cops need to know what to do when they happen. Especially the crimes that are against all Internet Everybody. users. Other questions? Anyone? Up here. Hi, uh, Frank Gallagher, Cable in the Classroom. Um, I guess a couple of you referred earlier on to uh, the pending legislation, the Wasserman Schultz and the Menendez is directing the money towards Department of Justice. And you know, um, to the Point Smart Click Safe Task Force, one of the first things that was that came out of that by having public health professionals and parent groups and educators in is that a lot of the previous work has been siloed and so I, I wonder if there is any chance that 
any of the money in those bills could be directed elsewhere. It seems like if, I, you, if, if your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail and that you're not going to get I don't. I don't think the Department of Justice and the law enforcement arm will determine what's happening. Somebody needs to write the check. And they've done a great deal in the program so that when it's determined through consultation with uh, the health and education, somebody then once it's determined whatever it is, whatever standards they set up that's going to happen, it, justice is only involved in writing the check, not deciding what it is that's going to be funded. So there's been a lot of talk about who gets to write the check. Frankly, whoever writes it fast and has a large enough system to do it, and from all of my friends in education who have been telling me, it's hard to get a check out of education. Mm. So it might be easier just to use their system, but under standards and values and credentials that are determined through across the board, wellness, education, and crime prevention. Todd, quick it, comment on that? Yeah. Okay, um, Todd, go first. I disagree with Perry in part and agree in part. Um, the disagreement is that, unfortunately, the law very specifically, the law, the legislation very specifically says consultation. So that means that DOJ does direct this. However, the political reality is that trying to put this program into education, you immediately run up against the fact that the Department of Education, year in and year out, is a tooth and nails battle for every penny. So if you put the pr program into the Department of Education, you might as well have not done this because it's not going to get the money. It's unfortunate. I've worked for too many years in appropriations there. I would pr much prefer to see it in health. However, also there's political reality of which committees can you get it through. And right now there is movement to move it through justice, uh, the, the judiciary committees. Um, and, you know, Hopefully it can be strengthened during the committee process to do more than just consultation, but unfortunately the sausage factory that is Congress, in, you have to, you know, you get some good parts and some not so good parts. You mean there's politics involved in this process? Oh, God, imagine that. It's also worth looking at, at who's in charge at Justice at giving out this money, and Lori Robinson, who has the full confidence of Attorney General Holder, ran the Office of Justice programs uh, eight years ago, and uh, has uh, is is very big on prevention and very big on on distributing money to entities that really have a strong track record of success. And uh, Attorney General Holder convinced her to give up teaching uh, to come back because he felt administering these programs in a uh, really smart way was important. And she's not somebody who's going to have blinders on and disregard. Uh, applications from education or health uh, entities yeah. that have and been. the NTIA has education it has FTC and FCC involved mm -hmm. in it as well so we're no longer looking at things in silos we finally realize that unless we all talk to each other this isn't going to work and if I, if I can add just one thing here this is a much better uh, debate to be having than the debate about silver bullet criminalization solutions on the one hand versus education on the other mm -hmm. I mean I understand why this matters but to, to me this is far less important than, than the fundamental uh, choice between user empowerment education versus criminalization, trying to uh, deputize Absolutely. internet intermediaries uh, and, and really uh, severely erode free speech. So I, I, you know, I wish you all well in terms of how this, this, goes, uh, this, this decision is made, but however it's resolved, w w this will still be a victory in my mind. And that's, and that's one of the things about it being a DOJ versus ed versus whatever. It's don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. <laughs> and if we try and get this through ed, it'll definitely torpedo it. Through HHS, don't know. You know. So the fact that we've been fighting for many years to get funding for education of 
kids on these issues, let's get the funding and then we'll figure it out after that. You know. <laughs> well, folks, uh, we're up at the quarter of the hour, so that's when I promise to let you out of here. Is there one final question or is that going to be it? Well, thank you so much. I want you to please join me in thanking our panelists for an excellent conversation. Thank you so much.